Welcome back to Talk Evidence, which we're recording on Wednesday, the 20th of May. Again, this week, we are focusing on the COVID-19 outbreak, but we will have a little bit of non-COVID relief for you in there. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan. Hi, Duncan. Hey, Helen. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Carl. So a lot's been happening this week and uh, we have seen that, well, last week, Carl, you mentioned the problems with hydroxychloroquine and it seems like Donald Trump didn't listen to what you said in the podcast and is taking it anyway. I, I, I think I, Donald Trump is going to become the icon for our evidence-based teaching going forward <laughs> of expert opinion as opposed to the use of evidence. And I think it is a great example of where we see this problems. But it's interesting, it's not just Donald Trump. We've seen adoption around the world of different countries and clinicians desperate to find something that works and going with their hunches and their belief system. And I think uh, Helen has picked out a couple of studies uh, this week in the BMJ that show hydroxychloroquine's not all it's made up to be. Yes, we're going to bring some evidence to it. So, uh, as Carl said, we're doing hydroxychloroquine for a start. We have some non-COVID research for you. Later on, we're going to be hearing a bit about lockdown, which we've finally managed to actually get, and a quick update on testing. So it's a packed show this week. Um, But Helen, for a start, yes, um, tell us about some evidence for hydroxychloroquine. Okay, so my message from reading these two studies that Carl alluded to is now is not the time to start hydroxychloroquine. So there were two new studies published in the BMJ this week that have been attracting a fair amount of attention. And I think they add to a picture that there really is very little evidence to support its use in COVID-19. And it's certainly hard to imagine hydroxychloroquine making it increasingly I think. So one study is a trial from China so it should be providing us with quite good evidence but there are a few tricky things about it. One is that although it was set in hospital the population is more like the spectrum of disease that you might see in primary care in other areas of the world and the people included in the study are a little bit unusual because they'd already had symptoms for a couple of weeks And similar to the remdesivir study, which we mentioned last week in The Lancet, it was stopped early because recruitment slowed as the peak passed in China. So they could only recruit about half the people that they needed to to the study. They have a slightly odd outcome. I don't think you're going to like this one, Carl. The the main outcome they were looking for was negative SARS swabs at day 28 um, and clinical improvement, which is a little bit hard to get your head around. Um, but I think the key message is, despite those outcomes, um, they didn't detect a particular advantage to hydroxychloroquine. However, they did detect that people in the hydroxychloroquine group were more likely to experience adverse events. Not necessarily what a trial might characterise as serious adverse events, but nonetheless events that if you're already feeling pretty um, crappy with a with a virus um, might feel 
unpleasant to you, so predominantly diarrhea and vomiting. The second study is a retrospective one in people with severe COVID. Uh, It's set in four tertiary care centres in France. It's not a randomised study. Similar number of people, about 180, about half of whom got hydroxychloroquine. And that was looking at whether there was an association with survival without transfer to uh, the intensive care unit at day 21, overall survival and discharge from hospital to home or rehabilitation, all at day 21. There's a few more secondaries, but I will not mention them all now. And again, the message was quite similar, no association. So we're seeing in those different populations, people with milder disease and then people at the severe end, no particular evidence here of helpfulness. So arguably, I think the only area (laughs) that we haven't published on this week is prevention. Um, So there you are. Any quick thoughts on that, Carl? Yeah, it makes me think of a new term. I'm calling this the, the NID. The non-important difference. And uh, and it's just making me think of all these sorts of endpoints which are unhelpful, pretty meaningless, and not going targeted to where we want to be in terms of important outcomes. But my other thought is, and I don't know if this has happened to you, is I'm, I'm starting to get a sort of evidence fatigue. It's sort of like a panic of trying to keep up with all the evidence as it emerges. Huge pace of information coming out all the time, being cited in huge different numbers in different journals, preprints. And there's a structural problem emerging of how do you keep up to date with some of this evidence as it comes out in a sort of real-time phenomenon. And this is sort of, in my mind, sort of thinking through we need some different approach for these important outcomes and important exposures to try and make sense of what's going on and particularly how do we compare different interventions, different exposures, risk factors, diagnostic tests, as we'll hear about. It's really difficult and challenging to get your head around all this evidence. Well, I like the concept of a NID. I think I might take to that when I'm screening some research (laughs) papers later. I'm going to ignore that, you NID. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No NIDs in here. Um, And just uh, one quick thing, Helen. Donald Trump said he's taking these prophylactically and they're they're not even looking at that, let alone um, saying that there's any evidence for it. No, neither of these studies help us to answer the prophylaxis question, which which I think there is some work on that underway, but I do not think there are clear answers there yet. So uh, again, we've broken our stop and stop. This is a don't even think about (laughs) taking hydroxychloroquine at the moment. Okay, so um, Carl, this week, as you just said, you've had some COVID evidence fatigue. You wanted to give all of our listeners a little break and bring in some uh, evidence about a whole different area of medicine. Yeah, it's always been talking about for the last 10 weeks has been COVID. So it was quite nice to see this trial appear in the BMJ, which was a trial of graduated compression stockings as adjuvant to pharmacothromboprophylaxis in elective surgical patients. Now, this is important because when we talk about graduated compression stockings, uh, 19 of the 20 trials come before the year 2000. And so now this question says, what happens if we compare thromboprophylaxis, which is current guidance with risk assessment and use of uh, treatments like low molecular weight heparin and add in compression stockings or not. And this trial randomised 1905 elective surgical inpatients 
And there's a really handy graphic that shows those with venous thromboembolism, the occurrence with just the low molecular weight heparin-only group was 1.7%, compared to the control group was 1.4%. And so they didn't reach the uh, important difference between the two groups and so what this puts into the arena is if we're using risk assessment we're using the guidance we're using low molecular weight heparin this says you can do away with the graduated compression stockings now why i think this is important evidence is because in clinical practice we often just carry on doing things because we've done them before but there's a need for us to really understand and root out low-value activities that are not required. So I think this is a hugely important evidence because if you start to do away with graduated compression stockings, you save some money. And we should be doing this all the time, thinking about what's going on. My only caveat to this is, in like all, basing your results on one trial alone is always one of them areas where you can feel a bit uncertain, was there something going on in this centre, in this design, that might affect the results. Therefore, I would love this to be replicated. If this is replicated in another trial, we see the systematic review, this is an intervention where we can disinvest it and start to understand the guidance better. And I think we need to see more of these trials questioning current practice whether it's investing in the strategy that works or disinvesting so we can free up some resources to spend it on high-value activities. And you can bring that back to COVID because that's what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Examining whether we should be restarting doing some things, especially as we are aware that um, finances will be tight, probably globally. Yep, and it sort of really fits in with our our too much medicine overdiagnosis theme, which we will be returning to uh, in the in the coming weeks so if you've enjoyed that break from covid don't give up well, more but this is another good example you Carl, see, people shush. oh come on let me have one point let me have my point i want my point this is a good example of why you need to trial non-drug interventions because you just don't know whether they work or not whereas with drugs we get it why we want trials but with all non-drugs and particularly in covid we tend to go we don't need the evidence they just work here's a classic example of a non-drug intervention because we've got other interventions and the risk is low it's not making a difference so helen are we going to lock down going to lock down i've delivered a week late um i wanted to come to the evidence around lockdown as we went into lockdown I felt like we were bamboozled to some extent with quite a bit of evidence, whether it was epidemic curves or nice visuals showing that, well, the more people you bumped into, the more likely you were to get COVID and how exponentially the epidemic would spread. We heard a lot about imperfect modelling studies about what various measures of lockdown, like shutting schools or stopping big sports events, would achieve. Um, and I think globally, we've we've seen some kind of lockdown. I guess you'd call it a complex intervention because everyone's sort of varied what they've done a little bit. But to me, it's felt like when we've come out of lockdown or as we're starting to talk about coming out of lockdown, the evidence has felt thinner. We've sort of seen that we're past the first peak. But I still think that the measures that are being proposed, at least the ones that I hear about in the UK, I don't know how how it is where our listeners are, they feel quite random to people. 
And I wanted to speak to someone about the evidence of lockdown and lifting. And I tracked down eventually David Nabarro. He's a professor of global health at Imperial College London. And he's also one of six special envoys to the WHO on COVID-19, a job that he's had since January. And he also teaches leadership through 4SD in Switzerland. And we will include a link to his website in our podcast notes. And I just wanted him to paint a global picture of what the WHO might share with us around evidence for locking down and lifting. Great, so let's listen to David Nabarro. Well, we know that the best way to stop transmission of this virus is the one that's normally used for any infectious diseases. That means uh, identifying people with the disease and then isolating them, finding their contacts, isolating them, so interrupting transmission and preventing an outbreak from building up. Now, because many countries just did not have that honeycomb-like public health capacity across communities, and also there's been real challenges with ramping up the level of testing, and that's why a more dramatic step was introduced, which was to encourage widespread physical distancing by getting everybody to stay at home and stopping economic and social activity. So this is lockdown and then the lifting of lockdown. Yes. So during a lockdown, what you have to do really intensively is to build up the community level public health capacity for case finding, contact tracing and isolation. Not all countries have actually done that with great alacrity because it's a tough job. It requires recruiting an awful lot of people, training them uh, and then getting the population ready for the reality that they're no longer going to be able to do whatever they like. They have to be kept under some degree of surveillance because you just cannot go on with a lockdown for long. It damages the economy. In fact, in many countries, the debate has been presented as either putting public health first and continuing the lockdown or putting the economy first and people's employment first and releasing the lockdown. I say no. I say you've got to get the public health right in order to release your lockdown safely. So it's not an either-or choice, it's a both-and reality. And it's not just both-and for what the government does. Businesses have got to become COVID-ready. Schools and universities have got to become COVID-ready. Airlines and other conveyance mechanisms have got to be COVID-ready. So what I've been doing over the last few weeks in all my communications with governments and with businesses and with universities is talking with them about what being COVID ready is all about. I continue to say that it means everybody recognizing that they've got to come to terms with this virus and learn how to live with it as a constant threat. So there's a massive population orientation exercise necessary. So task one is engaging with the people everywhere at local level. The conversation must start, it must go on, And we've got to move away from the notion that the state's going to tell everybody what to do because there's no playbook. We're all learning all the time on how to get it right. It's having a universal uh, openness to converse and to accept that some people will get really angry. So are you saying that there isn't particular evidence on what should be done, the the precise steps that should be taken? It's a kind of... um, feeling your way and evaluation? Well, it's feeling your way, Helen, with principles. I want to say that we have no problem about 
whether or not the principles are right. Physical distancing matters. You can reduce the rate at which the uh, an outbreak doubles in size or using the, the favoured term in the UK, the R0, and you can actually suppress any kind of outbreak quite quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, face protection, that's a bit more difficult because there's a lot of confusion about the evidence and, and it's not strong. For me, it's quite obvious that if people can't practice physical distancing because they have to be close to other people, if they're in occupations that make that necessary, if they're providing care to people uh, in a residential setting or if they're all crammed together in a ship's hold, then yeah, they must face protect, uh, you, you know, that's so, for me, must do it. And then hygiene, that's absolutely essential. Hand washing and keeping surfaces clean. Uh, obviously, there'll be some questions about which surfaces matter the most and, and what to, do, to use to keep things clean. And there'll be questions on the evidence on that. But the basic elements of physical distancing, face protection, hygiene for a disease that's carried through respiratory droplets, for me, no question. And then there's also no question that isolation works. The, the, perhaps the, the debate is whether self-isolation at home is good enough or it actually leads to quite a lot of infection among family members and whether instead people should be taken out of their homes and put into a hotel or some other setting where they can maintain the isolation. Experience from East Asia suggests that actually if you really want to stop transmission, that taking people into special isolation facilities is the only sure way of doing it. The other good evidence that we have got now is that contact tracing really matters. Mm. Then the third part is, if you do get an outbreak, responding extremely rapidly and robustly, and in particular stopping people moving out of the area where there's an outbreak is hugely helpful because then you don't see the outbreak into other countries or other locations in your own country. These three parts, therefore, people changing their behavior, being able to interrupt transmission quickly to stop outbreaks building up. Number three, if there's an outbreak, moving incredibly rapidly and suppressing it, and then you stop it. That's the key of dealing with COVID. When countries are deciding whether to come out of lockdown, the question that I believe uh, political decision makers have to ask of the public health people is, have you managed to build up sufficient public health capacity right throughout the country to be able to interrupt transmission? Have you got the outbreak suppression capacity in case an outbreak builds up? Have you paid special attention to the occupational groups that are most at risk? If it's a tick in these different areas, then the politician might be able to say to her or his colleagues, right, the conditions seem to be good for gradually lifting the lockdown bit by bit, you'll obviously have to do schools quite early on because schools really matter as part of society. We have to do essential services early on because without that society doesn't work. We've got to make sure that poor people are able to get access to employment, otherwise they're in a terrible situation and bit by bit you release. And I, I would actually leave the better off people who can afford to work from home till the end, I would leave areas that are perceived to be luxuries towards the end, though bear in mind that although these are luxuries for the consumer, they're also bread and butter employment for poorer people. So it's a, it's a tricky thing on that. A strong thing that's come up has been around care homes. Does the WHO have particular advice or guidance on, on how to deal with that? Absolutely. And of course, residential care of any kind is risky 
because people are close together and there has to be physical contact or very close contact between those who provide care and those who are receiving it. There's no simple solution to these kinds of settings. For example, if you really want to keep, keep people in residential care for older people safe, the staff have to make certain that when they're not providing the care, they're also keeping themselves away from other people when they go out and they go home. When they, and that's difficult. I do know of some residential care staff who've actually said for the time being, uh, they want to keep themselves away from their families. They want to absolutely stop any kind of social contact, simply to try to protect those they care for. So that was David Nabarro uh, having a very interesting conversation with me earlier in the week. And I felt like I'd heard a lot of those themes before, but it was quite nice to hear it all gathered together in one place, particularly the untenable nature of lockdown and to hear about those elements like isolation, contact tracing, testing and shutting down areas. And then those more individual level things, uh, physical distancing, face protection, hygiene and isolation. And he seemed to know that they were the right things to do, but was suggesting that perhaps there was some fine tuning in those categories to understand exactly how we should do that for COVID. I thought the information on isolating people with infection either in or outside the home was quite interesting working out which of those strategies was better and and the, his reflections on just the ask of, of care home staff perhaps to keep themselves separate from their families and the final thing which I thought was quite interesting was the how local it all felt whether it was about local public health or local schools local communities local businesses trying to organize themselves um in their response as as things lift what did you think Carl well look I think there's a sort of an approach which when you go and talk to people who are specifically infection they're very concrete in their thinking about what works and then they clarify that with lots of statements about I believe I think because they often rely on modeling and not evidence so let's try and just bring some context to where we are there have been 325,000 deaths from COVID globally this year alone, there's been 22,600,000 deaths. So the number of deaths from COVID is a small portion of that. There are huge questions to be asked about lockdown, about what we call suppression tactics, because it's not just about the economy and whether people have jobs or not. We know that when the economy goes downwards, when we have austerity, that has a huge impact on mortality and morbidity. People who transition into lower social deprivation classes will take on more non-communicable diseases and people will die as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear to me in the bigger picture of what's happened. The evidence shows in the two weeks before we went into lockdown, the transmission of acute respiratory infections went down by 50%. From encouragement of social distancing and hand washing had a huge impact. The death peaked on April the 8th. And if you work backwards like 21 days before that, that suggests the infections actually peaked pre-lockdown. What's interesting, though, is to know while we're all socially distancing and everybody's telling us that's worked, we've managed to drive it into 40% of care homes. So they become disproportionately affected. So I, it is not clear to me what's happened. It is not clear to me what's worked. 
We know in the under 45, the risk is minimal. There's been about 420 deaths. We also now we're in this position where there's a massive distortion of risk going on and understanding of risks. That people are scared and they don't want to send their children back to school. But the risk is, the dominant risk here is age. There's about a 10,000 fold difference between those at the age of 90 and those at about the age of 5 and 10. Huge difference in risk. So all the other risks are tiny compared to that age structure. Therefore, our predominant strategy should have been flexible, thinking around how do we shield those most important people, but also keep society, bits of society going, and understand the evidence and data of what we should be closing down to slow the spread down, whether that should be mass sporting events, whether in big cities that have been disproportionately affected, should we shut the tube, But we don't necessarily need to go into suppression. And I don't think we've got the economic means to do it again. So we need to be highly structured in our approach to understand what's happening. So you're saying, Carl, that you aren't very clear which of the elements of lockdown worked, if, if any. And you're also saying you don't know which of the lifting measures are going to be the most risky Yeah, and I think that's where you need much clearer advice and everybody has to participate. So one of the things you can do at the moment is, for instance, we've gone with primary schools and we've said they're all going to open on the 1st of June. But we could have done it by region, couldn't we? We could have gone, actually, southwest of England, you've got a low rate of infection. You could open up your primary schools now. Let's get going, 15 students, and we'll use that data for the next two weeks to understand what's happening. And then we can transition that to some of the areas where it's more likely to be disproportionately affected, like inner cities, and then go, rock two weeks' time. Going back to work, you could have been the same. Actually, could you ask 20% of your workforce to start going back to work for the next week? Week two, could you increase that to 40%? And we'll watch the data on admissions, watch the data on 111 calls, watch the test data, see what's happened. If you have that structured approach with your data and do it slightly different depending on the risk in different areas, that's how you develop your evidence. So you think people are being a bit too concrete at the moment? Correct. They're saying this works, we do this. Yeah. And in these sorts of outbreaks, you have to be much more flexible in your thinking And my perception is what we should be doing is using differential approaches with the data to drive the response. I think um, it might not have come through in that edited version, but that localism, Helen, that you picked up on was definitely something that that David was talking about, suppression in particular areas. Yes, I was going to say, so so localising things is definitely something that you and David... Uh, agree on Carl. One of the things that happens in healthcare, and I'm sure there's a a lot of... uh, uh, elderly and aging general practitioners, clinicians, public health people, I think, wow, things come full circle. It wouldn't surprise me if out of this we see the rebirth of strategic health authorities. And in doing that, strategic health authorities were three to five million people. That's what they've got in Germany, a much more regional approach, and they're tasked at the cold face to deliver the public health strategies. And I think that size is right to be able to deliver it in an area. So we're seeing that in areas where they've got mayors like Manchester. But here, like in Oxford, we used to have Thames Valley, and that used to have its own structure and strategy. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're in a year's time going back to where we were about 15 years ago, 
And then you have regional health authorities who are tasked with this, and that's their regional approach. And it's much easier to do at about that size than if you go too small, or the opposite is you go too big because then you have to centralise it. And I think that's been a problem for our approach. Mm. So watch this space, Rebirth of Strategic Health Authorities. You heard it here first. Well, I'll give you some more mm. deja vu if you want. Go ahead. Testing. <laughs> oh, here we go again. We haven't You're talked testing about me. it. No, not <laughs> testing you. Testing people for COVID. Oh. We haven't talked about it for about, I don't know, what is it, Dunk? Two weeks? Three weeks? I think we mentioned it last Did we? week. I mean, it's so important it's to all of this. Of mine, and isn't it? It is. And that's another thing that people talk about coming out of lockdown, the importance of knowing who has any sort of uh, resistance to, to the disease. And yeah, you've uh, you've caught up with John Deeks I again. have. We started a conversation with John Deeks a couple of weeks ago about testing because he was very engrossed in this systematic review in conjunction with Cochrane on various aspects of testing for COVID and particularly including the antibody tests. John Deeks is a professor of biostatistics at the University of Birmingham and happens to be the BMJ's chief statistical advisor. I think he used the phrase the wild west of testing. So we heard all about the wild west of testing. We know that we have problems with knowing whether the tests work. It's hard to compel that information into the public domain to be shared. um, And and it's really illustrating that our system for regulating testing is not very strong. And we looked at this example of publicly funded study in the UK looking at point of care antibody tests, looking at nine of some 300 odd different tests out there. And I wanted to continue this story because in the UK last week, we heard that Public Health England had approved, which seemed an odd concept to me, two tests. Um, And there was a lot of press releasing and there was a lot of claims of um, 100% accuracy. And I wanted to come back to John um, to hear his take on things. We talked about... um nine tests last time this uh, Oxford study that had come out and the focus in the last couple of weeks certainly in the UK has been on these two tests from Abbott and Roche were they in the nine tests or is this a separate thing the ones that we talked about last time were um, point of care tests lateral flow assays like a sort of pregnancy test where you see a color line change these tests require um, blood samples or serum samples to be taken to a laboratory and they're processed in batches on large machines. So they um, are good for for testing large numbers of samples at the same time, but not for a quick individual test result. And you have been um, on the trail of some information from Public Health England who appear to have been looking at the performance of these two uh, tests, the Roche and the Abbott one, in more detail. What's Public Health England's role in, in this? Well, I think this has been a little bit confused in in the press and by the government, to be honest, because Public Health England have run some evaluation studies to check whether the performance of these two tests, and I believe they're doing other tests as well, but we we haven't heard details of that, but that their role is to check whether the performance of these tests matches what the um, companies claim it to be in their instructions for use leaflets, so the basis of their registration. However, it's been portrayed that Public Health England are approving tests. Now, the the regulator approves tests, not Public Health England. And how easy have you found it to get hold of this uh, data on the performance of the test from Public Health England? Well, it's been a little bewildering because um, 
the, the clearest messages we got for about these studies came in the press last Thursday and Friday, and they were released um, first by Roche and then by Abbott. Um, and Public Health, Health England, um, although uh, Professor John Newton commented on these in a press release, they haven't actually released any data for these. Uh, it turns out that PHE had sent uh, the um, manufacturers draft copies of the reports from their evaluations and the manufacturers somewhat jumped the gun in getting these results out into the, into the public domain and into the press. And PHE didn't seem like it was ready to release them. So the reports were published Tuesday this week by PHE. I'd been tweeting about it saying where were they and probably irritating them by doing that. But yeah, they did the job of publishing yesterday. Um, I think it's all been a bit of a rush for them to get out because of um, the high media profile, which um, these results have ended up getting. And from the information that had been in the Roche and Abbott press releases, um, I think there were there was widespread acceptance in the scientific community that it was very difficult to understand the diagnostic performance based on the information that was shared. Based on what we now know from Public Health England, what um, are you able to share about how well these two tests uh, perform in a kind of traditional diagnostic accuracy way? Yes, so the message we had from um, the manufacturers and from the government were these tests are 100% accurate. Now, um, we don't use the term accurate because accurate has two components to it, sensitivity and specificity. I guess the the phrase 100% accurate would imply to most people that uh, it's perfect in both its sensitivity and its specificity, that it never makes an error. What we can see um, very clearly from the reports from Public Health England now is that um, both of these tests are really specific, um, that they rarely give us false positive results. However, their sensitivity is far from being perfect. Um, for the Roche test, I'm going to give you some numbers straight from their report now. There were 93 samples with COVID-19 that were tested and 78 of those 93 gave positive test results. So there were 16% were missed. For the Abbott test, the results were slightly better. Um, there were 96 samples um, of COVID cases that were tested. We don't know whether they're the same samples or, or different samples. And of those 96, 90 were given positive test results. So there were 6% missed for Abbott, so, so less than for Roche. These error rates, they may, they may still be low enough for these tests to have a useful role. Um, they definitely are not uh, 100% accurate. Uh, one of the things, though, is um, we need to be clear with any antibody test as to how the uh, performance, the accuracy changes with the time since the onset of infection. The data in the reports helps us look at that. For the Roche study, uh, we see that actually um, in the samples taken between 11 and 20 days, that 25% of those samples were, were wrongly diagnosed as being negative. And that only improved to 21% for the samples from 21 to 30 days. You have to go um, beyond 30 days, so, so four weeks after the onset of symptoms to, to get sensitivities which are up in the um, 80s and 90%. And we have to be very careful because these are, are, are based on very small sample numbers and have large uncertainty in them. Interestingly, the Abbott test did not show quite such a strong relationship. The um, sensitivity of the Abbott test uh, um, was shown to be above 90% from 11 days onwards, so right from quite early on. But again, this is based on really small numbers, so we have to be very careful in drawing strong conclusions from these, um, these data.
We've seen this with all of the um, tests for um, antibodies that we've been looking at in our in our review, which we'll, we'll soon be publishing. So this is not not a new finding, but it's very important that we actually are specific about the time at which we are doing the test to understand how accurate it's going to be. And what can we say about those more clinically focused ways of asking the question in terms of the positive and negative predictive values of the tests? Yes, yeah, so th- this is important because um, as an individual, as, as a person who you, you've had the symptoms, um, you think you might have had COVID uh, and you want to know whether you've now got antibodies to COVID. If you're thinking about that scenario, the, the, the what we call the positive predictive value, that, that is, um, if I did the test and got a positive result back, how sure am I that I really had COVID? Those values are very high for both tests. The actual value you get depends on how likely you were to have had COVID. So if we took the the idea that maybe half the people who've had COVID-like symptoms have actually had COVID rather than some other respiratory infection, then you end up with figures um, well above 95% for a, a positive test result. But the more worrying thing is how good is a negative test result? Actually, for the Roche test, if you've done the test maybe three weeks after having symptoms, and you get a negative test result back, you've still got a 15% chance that you had COVID. So it doesn't actually uh, rule out having had COVID. It's still possible that you've had it. This is all using the PHE values. There's some concerns we have about those. But but the, the, the negative predictive value is a bit stronger. So it's down to maybe a, a 5 to 10% chance that you've had COVID if you've got a negative test result back. So are these game changer tests? I don't think they are. Um, they don't seem that different in performance from, from other tests we're looking at in, in our Cochrane Review. Some of the tests from China have, have actually got similar performance. Um, I think the media hype around these and, and the political spin which has come out with these has, has portrayed them as such, but there's nothing particularly special about either of these tests compared to the many other options uh, which are out there. There are other manufacturers who are perform- producing tests which haven't been evaluated by PHE, for which there are good studies which suggest that they, they are as good, if not better, than these. It's always so fascinating talking to John. Um, He's so straightforward. And he mentioned as he was talking political and media hype. But another concern that I had um, reflecting on this whole episode is around the commercial hype and what agenda is leading this. And it just was very striking to me that the genesis of this news and announcement felt like it was coming from the companies in, in their press releases with very hopeful sounding statistics. And then it feels a bit like here are the scientists now having to undo that hype and and maybe coming across as I don't know slightly slightly miserable for doing actually what's their job it just feels back to front that you're leading with these very excitable numbers very hopeful sounding numbers and then when you start to scratch beneath the surface it starts to to disappear I think it's very interesting I think what's happening here is the realization that testing is a large commercial operation for which you can come to the market very quickly and make a lot of money 
There have been over 12 million total tests around the world so far just for PCR testing. So that's one big bit of the business. But then the second part of the business is serology testing, antibody testing. And today I've just been made aware that we've got the first you can get them on the high street tests are available. One is at £65 and the other is available in a local local pharmacy that is available, a big company across the country so there's going to be a huge commercial operation to try and say you need your antibody test and it's very interesting when you look at the blurb that goes with these or even on the market it says but we do not take any responsibility for the accuracy of the results provided <laughs> by the laboratory so it's a misnomer isn't it so we've got a huge problem bringing them to the market can occur very quickly very low bar evidence We've got Public Health England somehow testing and making some evidence available without actually saying what they're doing. And then John saying we've got 54 serology tests under in our review and there are more coming. What a mess this market is. And I think this has a huge problem going forward because also there'll be a huge appetite to have these tests if you think you've had the disease. But it's also not clear to me what actually how that helps you. What's the strategy? If the government buys two to three million tests, what does that mean for you? What does it mean to us if we know? Because you could answer the tests, the answer about how many people have had the disease with small number of tests in random sampling methods. I guess it's for healthcare workers, isn't it? I mean, when the RNA tests were not particularly available, there were lots of people who isolated because they felt ill and they now want to know whether they have had it. And I suppose it has implications again as we start to lift the lockdown. So say your kids go back to school and then they get a fever and you're, are you going to have to isolate again? Or could these antibody tests have a role in saying, well, actually, I've got the antibodies, so maybe I don't need to isolate. But on that, Helen, when you were speaking to, to John there, you have talked very much about the problem with potentially having false negatives. But if the the scenario that you're saying, actually, it's a false positive, that would be um, yeah, the thing that we I, need I, to worry I, about. Yeah, I, I was feeling listening to John that from conversations with other clinical friends, the antibody test may have some personal, at least interest for them. Or <laughs> You could perhaps imagine mm. policies developing around those things. Do you not think, Carl? Yeah, yeah I'm going to give you a, a, a very good personal example. So um, I... I I've had uh, nine days of symptoms with COVID that I consider. I was in the period when there was no testing available whatsoever because we'd shut it down. I would like to have the antibody test because this weekend, for instance, I'm working in out of hours and I will be going in nursing homes and seeing patients who may have other conditions but might have COVID, for instance. Wouldn't it be incredibly useful to have a number of doctors who know they have immunity? And I think that would be hugely helpful because right now that should be in the nursing home strategy. If you've got a number of doctors who've got immunity, you should be using them to go in the places where you don't want to spread the disease. Well, I suppose we're saying at the moment we don't know how long that immunity lasts. There's a lot of uncertainty around those things, mm. but that's exactly the kind of use I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And I've been surprised that they haven't switched on to this strategy because one of the things I said yesterday is the deaths are coming down. We've had infection in 40% of the care homes. That means 60% are COVID-free. We have to maintain them 60% as COVID-free. Therefore, we should be using every strategy available to make sure they do not have outbreaks because that could keep the cycle of deaths going on and on. One of the things is to find out who's immune and use them people 
to actually go into homes, assess patients and come out. And to be honest with you, I'd be quite happy to do that on a sporadic basis if I knew immunity. I could do it directly from home. I know where all the nursing homes and care homes are. You wouldn't want to be sending people in who are potentially could be infectious and drive the onward transmission. That is such a useful strategy. The other place where it through. might help out is with admissions as things yeah. open up. If you were being admitted for routine surgery, for example, it might be useful to know um, that you've got antibodies to to the virus if you're going in for a big operation that might take Correct. you into ITU might put you at risk um, of, of inhaling the particles yeah. elsewhere in the environment or coming into contact with healthcare workers who might be asymptomatically infected so I do think there are some important individual situations where where this kind of testing is going to help and I think is this is where the transparency of the evidence is really important I think there are important strategies but what you want to do is set them strategies out put them out there and then use evidence to test whether they're actually feasible. Is it possible to do this? And in doing this, what happens? Do you actually see less transmission, less impact when you do surgery? And if we were much more explicit in our advice now, I think we'd have a better understanding of what to do going forward. But we have to be flexible in that advice. And that's why you have to make it available, put it out there, and respond as you go on, saying, actually, we've understood in some areas we've got enough people with antibodies to be able to deliver this as an actual uh, provision of services. But in some areas, you might not have enough GPs or doctors or healthcare workers with antibodies to do it, and that's okay. But incredibly important, what about in care homes now? There are a lot of people looking for work. If they've got antibodies, they could be carers right now helping provide the service, particularly when people go off and are unwell. And I think that would be hugely helpful. I think that's a good point to to end it on. I'm sure we'll be back talking to John about testing at some point again in the future. So if you've enjoyed this and you have got any questions, maybe for John or anyone else, uh, then do get in touch. You can go to bmj.com slash podcast or via social media and we will try and answer your questions. We've got a few of them coming up in the next few episodes. If you want to find out what the answers to those upcoming questions are, then make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We'll be back next week with more talk evidence and before then we'll be talking uh, more about public health and well-being so uh, until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care out there